And uh, my prayer has been that God will show us that in David, a man after God's own heart, he was still filled with sin and failure and flaws. And uh, he often didn't get it right. But yet he continued to trust God in all things. And God did a great work in his life. And just because we look at these characters and we think, well, man, David and Paul and Abraham, they're just something special about them, but, but I'm just an ordinary person. I hope that you were here last week. If not, you can go back and listen to that message online. But we looked at what God does in the ordinary circumstances, in the ordinary people. There are no super extraordinary people. There's just people that are surrendered to God. And he does extraordinary things in their life. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 17 uh, today at a story that I think you'll be familiar with. But before we get into that text, I'm going to read to you from Ephesians chapter 6 for our time of 17. I want to try to preach to you this morning a message that I'm taking straight out of one of the verses in the chapter. And that is, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. We all at times talk about spiritual battles that we face in life. And over and over we're commanded to Trust that God will fight for us, as the girls sang for us this morning. So, no matter where you're at, no matter what battle you're facing, know that the battle is the Lord's. One of the things, as I said just a minute ago, is uh, this last few months I've had a few health issues that I'm praying and thankful that hopefully are behind me now. But one thing I've noticed too as I've gotten older is my eyesight is not quite as good as it used to be. Can anybody say amen to that? I'm, I'm, oh, all right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit, I'm gonna, in my time of confession, I'm going to confess to you and my wife. Will, if you hear somebody shout amen, that's her back there. I'm a little stubborn about things. And so I have glasses and I have contacts, but you don't see me wearing them too often, right? Because I guess that would, I'd have to admit that I'm actually getting older and have an eyesight issue. So I do wear them at night because otherwise I'll either be in a ditch or worse. And so I do wear them at night. But I, I, I understand that, you know, I should wear my glasses more than I do um, because I need to be able to see. I need to be able to focus on what I'm trying to see. As you get older in life, unfortunately, your eyesight may fail at some point. It may get worse. But think about this as believers, as we mature and grow in the faith, our eyesight spiritually speaking, should actually get better. It should actually improve. When I don't wear my glasses, like I'm staring at that screen back there and I can't see a thing back there. When I don't wear my glasses, I can't see things clearly at all. But as believers, when we don't see, th- see things through the Word of God and through the lens that God sees them, everything is blurry, so to speak, in life, spiritually speaking, too. We won't see clearly if we look at things through our carnal, fleshly eyes, the way that God wants us to see things through His eyes. We didn't look at 1 Samuel 16 last week. I kind of went back even before that and preached about David's life as he was getting prepared. We've talked a little bit this year about 1 Samuel 16 and, and God's call of David, uh, His choosing of David. So I kind of went over that. But I do want to reference a verse just for remembrance today from that chapter. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, remember these words, because they are going to be key as we look at David's life. But more than that, as we look at how God is working in David's life and ours as well. It says that the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature. Everybody was caught up in trying to choose the right man by what they looked like, by what their qualifications were. God says, don't look at his appearance. 
or at his physical, physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. God sees inside of man, sees what makes up their character and their being. David was a man after God's own heart, and we looked at the reasons for that. So today, I want to look at 1 Samuel 17. This is a story that I would say most of you probably know, but I would also venture to say that a lot of you have been taught or at least heard, especially if you listen to a lot of messages today on this text, you've probably been instructed to apply this Maybe not necessarily in a completely wrong way, but I think in a, in a way that takes away from the main point. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, I've been trying to drive home that in Bible study, our first priority is to simply find the actual meaning of the text. And today we start with the application and try to figure out how everything applies to us and we all have an opinion. And so everybody's got their own interpretation, so to speak, of the text because they found an application, but they don't really understand what the text is about. And we have to let the Bible speak for itself and find out what God is saying in the Word and then make application secondary. So we're going to look at this today, a story that you're familiar with, David and Goliath, but we're going to try to find the actual meaning and then make application as a result of that meaning. So I'm going to give you, we're going to look at this as a story. It is a descriptive text, so again, if you're with us on Wednesday, these words will make sense. It's describing an actual event that occurred thousands of years ago in an actual time and place between two actual people groups, all right? And so this story, while it has application to it, we're not necessarily called or commanded to recreate this event. We're not David fighting Goliath every day when financial problems come. I'm not taking up my stone of faith today and throwing it at my medical bills and saying, in Jesus' name, wipe those away so that I don't have to pay them. That's not what the text is about, okay? And so we want to look at it and try to draw some correct application and find out who the real hero of the story is, all right? The hero is not actually David. The hero is not us. The hero is Jesus. The hero is Jesus, all right? So let's look at this. We're going to look at the story, and I'm going to try to break it down, if you will, if we were watching this as a play unfolding on a stage. We're going to look at four scenes in this stage, okay? I thought that might be the easiest way to break it down and remember this. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Scene one, we see the soldiers standing still. We see the soldiers standing still. I'll try not to read every single verse, but I'm going to read several verses from it just so we can kind of follow along. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and they were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Succoth and Azekah, and in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. So if you saw the video I shared uh, on Facebook, that was very helpful, I hope, for you to see that physically. But even if you can't, just try to get in your mind that there are two mountains and a mile-wide valley in the middle. So you have Israel on one side, you have Philistines on the other side and this big valley separating them and they are staring at each other across this big valley but nobody's really making a move everybody's lined up and ready for battle but nobody's going anywhere now Saul if you remember Saul was the king that Israel wanted they demanded a king they wanted to be like other nations so God gives them Saul he's an impressive looking guy on the outside but where does God look on the heart 
And his heart was not where God wanted it to be. His heart was far from him. And so God ultimately removes the kingdom from Saul, gives it to David. David is anointed in chapter 16, but David is far from actually being installed yet as the king. Saul is still the one supposedly calling the shots. He's the one that Israel is looking to. And quite frankly, he is the one that when David or when Goliath issues the challenge, he is the one that ought to have taken up the challenge and stepped forward. But he does not, and he will not. And so he's standing there wringing his hands, wondering what to do. And as a result, Israel's looking at him and they're saying, well, he's scared to death. He's not making a move. We're not going if he's not going. And so everybody's just kind of at a standstill. They're lined up, not moving anywhere. The Bible shows us and tells us over and over that we are not to fear man when we're following God. That we are to trust Him. The battle is His. There's a scripture that you've probably heard before in Proverbs that says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Saul, I believe he probably had an idea of what he was supposed to do and where he wanted to go, but his vision was not in line with what God wanted of him. And we see that over and over when he would go into battle. God, through Samuel, would give specific commands and specific things for him to do. And over and over again, he did it his way. He thought that his way was going to be better. And over and over again, it got him deeper and deeper into a mess. Until eventually the kingdom was taken away from him. His faith was non-existent. His hope was not there. And it rubbed off on the people he was supposed to be leading. And so, that's kind of what we see. We're at a standstill. Both armies there. And eventually, look what it says in verse 4. A champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Nine feet, nine inches tall is this man. He comes out from among the Philistines. He says, the Bible says that he is their champion. That means literally a man in between. A lot of times in these ancient cultures, when there was a battle set before two armies, rather than the entire armies engaging in a fight, they would send what we would call a representative. So what is happening here is, since the armies are sitting there at a standstill, Goliath, the champion, the one that has probably won many battles before and represented Philistines before, comes out and he says, okay, Let's do a one-on-one. I'm willing to take up the fight for my side. You send your best. Send the best you've got. And he and I will battle. And whoever wins, the entire group will collectively win together. That's what's taking place in this event. And the Bible describes this guy. And I don't know if we can really wrap our minds around what this would have looked like because warfare today is so different from what warfare back then was. But imagine this. You're already scared to death. Saul is not going to move. Even if it was an ordinary guy. This guy comes out. He's nine feet. Nine inches tall. The Bible describes him being covered in this brass armor. So imagine the sun like it is today shining. And this guy is almost glowing at a distance. The sun is just beaming off of this coat of mail he has on. Weighs about 125 pounds, which was probably nothing for him to carry around. He's got a spear. The head of the spear, just the head of the spear is 25 pounds. He's got a guy, this poor guy, I don't know how he got this job, but he had a guy that just stood before him with the shield. This guy just ran out ahead of him and carried the shield. So he was the one that took the brunt of the blows. I I wouldn't have signed up for that job. But somehow he got it, and he had this guy that would go for him. I mean, it was just amazing as you read this to think about 
what this scene would have looked like. And he challenges Israel. Drop down to verse 8. He stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Basically saying, why are we just standing around here? We've been camped out here. Nobody's doing anything. Why are you just standing around? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of who? Saul. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. He said, pick you out anybody you want to represent you and let's get on. Let's get this thing on here. Let's get going. Let's find out who really is going to win this war. I thought about what that scene would have looked like and I thought about today in our lives the enemy that we face as believers. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be vigilant because your adversary, our enemy is literally what that word means, our adversary, the devil. The Bible describes Satan, the devil, uh, in many ways. He's an angel of light. He's an accuser of the brethren. It calls him hereby the name or the title devil which means an accuser or a slanderer. The enemy is constantly hurtling accusations at us and about us. He's slandering the people of God over and over again. This devil walks around like a roaring lion. He's always making a lot of noise. He's letting it known that he is there. Seeking whom he may devour. That literally means to swallow down, to destroy. The enemy can't destroy believers as far as removing our salvations. But he can certainly make a mess of our walk with the Lord. He can destroy our testimonies. He can destroy our homes. He can destroy a lot of things in our lives. And I think sometimes we sway as usual to one extreme or the other. We give the devil too much credit. We blame the devil for everything. And don't recognize that he's already been crushed under the feet of Jesus. But then there's the other times where we sway aside and we just completely ignore Him. As though He has no say in our lives. And oftentimes, we don't put on that armor of God that we read about in our confession verse. And as a result, He has a field day with us. I saw a quote this week as I was preparing the message. And it really just hit me right in the stomach. It says, Saul couldn't fight Goliath because he was just like him. Saul couldn't fight Goliath because he was just like him. Not in the stature and the military prowess and the ability to stand up and fight, but he was worldly. He was operating in the flesh. He was not looking to the one true God for victory. The Philistines certainly had a multiplicity of gods, but Saul knew the one true God, and that was enough. And yet, In all of these things, and as we look at this text more, we're going to see that Saul never really at all puts any confidence in God. He has no faith in God like David does. And as a result, he's trying to engage in this battle. He's got armies lined up. He's got his armor on. But he's not going anywhere, and he's not going to go anywhere because he's trying to fight this fight in a way that was not meant to be fought. Saul is filled with fear. And now what I would say for us today is this, and it's a question we ought to ask. Church, we are arrayed for battle, if you will. We've got all the resources we need. We've got the Word of God. We've got the Spirit of God. We've got the people of God. But are we just lined up all the time with our armor on, staring out across the fields of the world, if you will, seeing 
that the enemy is taking people to hell, that he is devouring them as we stand by idle and watch. We are arrayed for the battle, but at what point will we actually engage in that battle? And I would say, because I've heard it over and over again, the thing that keeps us on the sidelines is the same thing that kept Israel and Saul on the sidelines. Fear and unbelief. We are so afraid of what people will think of us, what people will say of us, what people will walk out of our lives as a result of our faith. Listen to me, church. I hope that somebody told you that the gospel is costly. The gospel is going to cost you something. The gospel is going to separate. The gospel is going to divide. It doesn't cost us anything. Salvation was paid for by Jesus in that sense. I'm not saying that we earn our salvation or we work for our salvation. But I'm saying when you follow Jesus, there is a cost that is going to, become, that is going to come as a result of that, guys. There's no way around it. And I've told you, we don't go out with the intent to be divisive. We don't go out with the intent to pick a fight, so to speak. But if you share the truth, you will be hated by the world. How many times did Jesus tell us that? They're going to hate you, but they hated me first. In this world, you will have tribulation. And then we're shocked and surprised. And as a result, we say, well, I don't think I ought to say anything. And I understand there are certain circumstances and situations if you're at work. You can't just jump up on the desk in break time and stand up and start preaching. I understand that. You have to be wise enough to pick and choose your battles. But there's opportunities for us to share Jesus. You know, I I use social media. As bad as it is, I use it and probably use it too much. But I believe that we have an opportunity to shine light into a dark place. There's enough bad on social media, but we can use it for a lot of good. We use it to post pictures of our food we use it to post pictures of our cats and our dogs and we use it and that's fine i'm not saying that social media ought to be just for proselytizing people but every once in a while we ought to just just get on there and say hey i don't care if my friends list they're not really all your friends by the way i don't know if people have told you that not ever, not all those three thousand people care about you get on there and let them have jesus let them have it in a loving way, let them have it. Just post some verses on there and pray that God will take those and do something. We have got to engage church at some point. We can't just stay on the side of that mountain and stare across at the fight and say, well, not me. Pastor will do it. George will do it. Jeff will do it. Somebody else will do it. If you've been saved, you have been called into the mission field. You are a soldier for the Lord Jesus Christ. You might as well put on that armor and get ready to go to battle. Because ultimately, it's not your fight. The battle is the Lord's fight. I read to you in our confession verse, Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Just as God uses us, His people, The enemy uses people too. And oftentimes we engage in a war of words, a physical fight. That's not where the battle is. Not according to what I'm reading here. The battle is a spiritual battle. The battle is between the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of darkness. He's already won the battle. But as a result, we see two different groups of people. And we've got to fight it on a spiritual plane, guys. And that's beyond our flesh and blood to be able to do. We've got to depend on the Holy Spirit that dwells within every believer to use the Word of God to change hearts, to convict people. You know, your job is not to convict them. Your job is not to save them. 
Your job is to lovingly preach the truth and point them to Jesus. And pray that He will give the increase. It's His work. I can't save a one of you. If I could, I would go out there and I would make sure that each and every one of you knew Jesus before you left. And that's my prayer. But all I can do is preach to you the truth, point you to Jesus, and trust that the Holy Spirit is dealing with your hearts this morning, and you will respond in faith. And if you don't, I've done my part, but I'll continue to do it every week until He calls me home. And I hope that you will too. That's our duty. So we see these soldiers. They're standing still. Scene one kind of leaves us there. The champion is out there challenging, and nobody's doing anything but him. Let's look at the second scene. Write this one down. There's a shepherd standing steadfast. There's a shepherd standing steadfast. If we get down to verse 13, it says that the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. So remember, when in chapter 16, when they were trying to choose who was going to be the successor of Saul, Jesse brings all his sons up in front of everybody, and they go down the line, and they say, nope, 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 nope. He says, well, is this it? And they say, well, there's one more out in the field tending to the sheep. And they say, go get him. Okay? So three of these boys have decided to follow Saul into battle. That's what verse 13 is telling us. The names of the three sons who went into the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. Next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. Uh, David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. So again, the scene sets. David is out there doing his thing, taking care of the sheep. These three older brothers are in the army. Jesse is a bit concerned about his older sons in the battle, hasn't heard anything in a while. So he goes to David in verse 17, and he says, I want you to go and check on your brothers and bring them something. I'm sure they're tired and hungry. They probably need some food. So I want you to take ten loaves of bread, and I'm going to give you some cheese to take there and check on them and make sure that they're eating okay. All right, so that's kind of what's going on here. David is, is, is fixing to bring them some grilled cheese sandwiches. All right, that's what's getting, he's getting ready to make them a grilled cheese sandwich, courtesy of dad, and go check on them, okay? And so David shows up, and here's what was amazing to me as I read this story. We'll drop down a little bit to verse 23. David shows up, he's got the grilled cheese sandwiches, he's checking on the family, and then look what it says in verse 23. As he's talking with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by the name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. We remember what he said. Send somebody. Let's get this thing going. Right? He'd been saying that for 40 days. Israel had heard that every day like clockwork. Here he comes. Are we going to fight? I'm ready. And they're standing there for 40 days. David shows up. Here comes the champion out of the camp on the 41st day and says it again. How many times had David heard that message? Once. It was the first time he'd heard anything like this. They've been sitting there for 40 days listening to this guy. The first time that David shows up, he hears it. And look what it says. Let's read a little bit more in verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, notice that, they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So their response has not changed. In 40 days, there has been no revival. There has been no prayer meetings. There has been no anything that's turned their hearts back to trusting God. They're as scared as ever. David shows up on day one. Verse 25. 
The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king, will enrich with great riches. He'll give him his daughter his father's, and give him his father's house exemption from taxes. So they said, David, did you hear that guy? If someone was able to stand up to this guy who's defying Israel, Saul is going to give him riches. He's going to give him his daughter to marry. And he's never going to have to pay taxes again. What a deal. David's standing there with the grilled cheese sandwiches, and he's hearing about how he can be rich, have a beautiful wife in the kingdom, and never have to pay taxes again. In that moment, what would you have said? How would you have been thinking? You know, no taxes alone, good grief. Man, we'd be, we'd be doing all right, wouldn't we? And so that's kind of where, where he's at with this thing. But I want you to see how David responds. And, and we're going to see in this where David's heart truly is. We're going to see how God, remember last week, in the ordinary... David has never yet been king. He's never had to make royal decisions. He doesn't have counselors and people around him that's been telling him how to do this thing. He's been out in the field fighting bears and lions and protecting the sheep. And God used those circumstances to prepare him for such a time as this. In the ordinary, God was setting him up for this day. And look at his heart. Look at how he responds. David spoke to the men who stood by him. What should be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. Listen to how David views this guy. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He's not part of the covenant community of God. Remember, circumcision was part of the covenant of God's people. He said, this guy's not part of God's chosen people. This uncircumcised Philistine that defies who? The armies of the living God. He said this is more than just him throwing accusations at us as a people. He's standing in rebellion to God. This uncircumcised Philistine outside of the covenant of God is daring to blaspheme the one true God. That was David's response to this. David sees this battle exactly as he's supposed to, as a spiritual battle. Yes, there's a giant standing in front of him that all of Israel's been scared to death of, but David goes beyond the physical and says, my God is bigger than this giant. I'm part of the kingdom and family of God. I'm not worried about this uncircumcised Philistine because I know who I'm believed in and am persuaded that he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above beyond what I have ever thought or asked. But, as I told you, the church has been on the sidelines for a long time. Not every church, and not necessarily this church. But we have got to constantly engage the battle and see it for what it is, guys. We have got to be active, not just at church time, but in our lives. And so... When you do that, when you decide to take a stand for God, make no mistake about it, people are going to come against you. You're not going to lose, we often say, I lose friends. You didn't lose friends. You just found out who your friends are. There's a big difference. Sometimes it's a good thing when God removes people from your life. It may hurt. It talks about being the vine dresser and he prunes. And pruning can be hurtful. But sometimes the best thing that will happen in your life is God removing somebody. I'm telling you, it hurts in the moment, but it will save you a lot of pain later. All right? Trust God in that. But 
when you stand for God, people are going to stand against you. And more often than not, it's people closest to you first. A lot of times it will be your family that will give you the most grief and will stand against you the most. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, the oldest brother, heard that David had just said to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. He said, why did you come down here? I don't care about your grilled cheese sandwiches. I don't care that you said you were concerned about me. Why did you really come down here? He begins to question the motives. And that's exactly what happens when we stand for Jesus. What's going on with you? Maybe you've had these conversations with your family that's lost or they don't understand. What is going on with you? You're an absolute radical. You let this Jesus thing make you go crazy. Like tone it down a little bit. You can have Jesus, I don't mind that. But just you don't have to talk about Him all the time. Right? They don't understand the change that has taken place. They don't realize that when you meet Christ, or rather when He meets you and comes into your life, you're a new creature. And you can't help but talk about Him. I worry about people that don't talk about Jesus ever. Man, you talk about Him all you want around me because I'm excited to hear about Jesus. And I hope you're excited to talk about Jesus. Don't ever apologize for sharing your faith. Don't ever apologize for making much of Him. There's a time to use tact. I understand that. But don't ever stop proclaiming and preaching and praising the Lord Jesus. Eliab didn't like it. Why'd you come down here? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? Now he's concerned about who's taking care of things. Did you get somebody to do Aren't you supposed to be back there? It's your job. This is our job. You do worry about you. Right? That's what he's saying. I know your pride. Didn't we look last week at David and one of the things that made him a man after God's own heart was his humility? But now in the moment... Because Eliab is reading into this trying to figure it out. Your pride and your insolence of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. You're just here to see a show. You don't care about us and you don't care about any of these things. You're just here because you're nosy and you want to find out what's going on because you're prideful and you want to try to preach to us and you're not even in the army. He's attacked by his own family. And that will happen to you when you take a stand. The Bible doesn't say that David got puffed up and he let him have it. The Bible doesn't say that David even tried to defend himself. Look at verse 30. The first five words. Then he turned from him. David knew why he was there. David knew who had sent him there. David understood the battle. This is something that we need to understand as Christians. We will never advance... The kingdom of God fighting against each other. The battle is not against flesh and blood anyway, whether it's saved or lost. But when we get into war of words with the brethren and the sisters in the church, the enemy has us right where he wants us. The Bible says where there is no wood, the fire goes out. That can apply to gossip. That can apply to quarrels. If you have something against your brother or sister, go to that person one-on-one and get it worked out. Don't recruit people to your side. Talk to them. Get it out in the open. Have the conversation. Listen, reconciliation isn't always possible, but forgiveness is commanded. We may never again be able to come back together and be as close as we were. We may have to separate at some point, but we can always forgive. We can always love and pray for one another. But we need to deal with those problems and not get involved in a war of words. If if you today are ostracized from your family because every time you try to talk about Jesus, all you do is fight... I'm going to put the onus on you. 
I'm not saying that it's not their fault. I'm not saying that they haven't played a part in it. I'm not saying that they haven't responded wrong too. But you as a believer have the responsibility to take the higher ground, to take the biblical ground. And when you have that conversation with them, when they want to fight, don't fight. You're not going to argue anybody into the kingdom of God. Ever. Ever. Use wisdom, church. Let them see your love and your conduct in the way that you live. The scene, the curtain comes down on this scene now. Comes back up. The next scene that we're going to see here is Saul standing speculative. You can write that down. Saul standing speculative. Real quick, we'll look at this one. In verses 31 through 33, Eliab has just criticized David. Now Saul's going to take his jab at him. When the words which David spoke were heard, in verse 31 it says, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. So David comes up to Saul. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, your servant. He didn't say, remember me, I'm the guy that just got anointed a while back and I'm going to eventually take the throne from you. I'm here. Everybody look at me. I'm ready to go to battle. He humbly comes up and he says, your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David in verse 33, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him. He's already, he's already convinced. You have no, no chance. Why? Because again, he's looked on the outside. He's looked at Goliath, all nine feet, nine inches of him for 41 days out there shouting with his sword and his shield bearer and everybody else. And then he looks at David, ruddy, with a countenance that was good to look at. He says, there is no way that you are ready to fight this battle. He says, you are a youth. And he's a man of war from his youth. You're just a kid. You're just one of these young people here. You're not ready to engage in this kind of a fight. That's what Saul is saying to him. Another commentator said this. This was a great quote too. I wrote it down. It said that, this writer said, Saul saw how big Goliath was. David saw how big God was. Remember those glasses I talked about? If you don't put them on, things get a little blurry. Saul was looking with the wrong lenses on. All he could see was how big Goliath was and how impossible it was. David had biblical spectacles on, if you will. And he said, I know how big my God is. I'm going to trust Him. And I'm going to go into the fight. And then look what happens. Look down at verse 38. Saul closed David with his armor. And he put on a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with a coat of mail. Again, Saul is convinced in his mind that this is just simply a physical battle. You better put on everything you can because, buddy, this guy's going to come at you and you better protect yourself. But I think there's more than that going on here. Remember, David was a humble man, but Saul was very proud. And in these times, when you wanted to associate with yourself with someone, you would often give them either an article of clothing or a weapon or something because deep down the idea is, if by some miraculous chance David wins this fight, Saul could take a little bit of credit because he used his stuff. It'd be like if George was going to race somebody. We imagine that. We get George out there doing street racing. If George wanted to race somebody and he called up and said, Hey, Pastor, I know you got a Mustang in your garage that never gets moved. So I'd like to take that out and race this guy with it. And George wins the race in my Mustang. And I can say, Well, you know, George, you probably never would have won if it wasn't using my Mustang. That's the idea. Saul, you know, Saul's giving him the armor. We see that in the book of Ruth 
when the kinsman, as the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, and the relative doesn't want to buy the field and get Ruth as the wife, so he takes his sandal off, the Bible says, and gives it to Boaz. It's kind of an extension of himself. And I believe that that's what's going on here with Saul too. Behind it, really, he's saying, well, you can go out there and get killed if you want to. I'm not going. But if by chance you win, I can take a little credit in this thing. I can save face a little bit. That's the kind of attitude that Saul had. But look at David again, his response over and over and over. He recognizes that the battle is the Lord's. He's not trusting in himself. He's not trusting in worldly wisdom. He took, he says I, in verse 39, I can't walk with these. I've not tested these things. That's, that's not the way that God has prepared me. Right? If God's prepared you, trust what God has done in your life. Verse 40, he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling which was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. He was trusting God. God had equipped him. He was a shepherd at heart and he was going into battle as a shepherd. He wasn't going to change who he was, who God had made him to be to fight this fight. And that's a good lesson for us, guys. A lot of times we are so worried about everybody else and comparing ourselves. I don't know how many times, especially this is true, and I'm not picking on men, but this happens a lot in men's group meetings over the years that I've had. They'll say, man, my wife is just so far along in her walk, and I feel like you know I'm supposed to be the man of the house, and she's grown so much, and I'm not where I need to be. Listen, if you're not where you need to be because you're just lazy, and you never open the Word of God, and you never pray, and you never do anything, then that's on you. But if you're studying the Word of God and you're praying, you're where you need to be. Don't worry about how far your wife is ahead of you. Don't worry about how far I'm ahead of you or somebody else is ahead of you. Don't boast that you're ahead of somebody else. If you're doing the things that God wants you to do that He commands us to do and you're where you're at right now, then you're where you need to be. God has equipped you for the season that you're in. Fight the battle with what you have. Fight the battle with who you have. And trust Him. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. David wasn't concerned with trying to put on Saul's armor. He had everything that God had equipped him, and he was ready to go. Ultimately, guys, our duty is to please God and not man. And if He has prepared you to do that, then do it. Get off the sideline, trust God, and go with the equipment that God has given you in this season. Keep striving to grow. Keep desiring to grow. But don't say, well, when I know a little more, when I'm more able when I get through this class, when I become a member of the church, then I'll do this. No, no. If God is calling you today to do something, He is calling you to trust Him today, and He has given you what you need for today to do it. The curtain comes down. The final scene, let's look at it. We're going to see number four. The sovereign stands superior. The sovereign stands superior. As you read these last verses, it's interesting they spend, God spends more time describing the back and forth than He does the actual battle. There's more about what was said than actually what happens. won't read all of it, but in verse 41 through verses 44, if we look at that briefly, we see the back and forth, and we see the Philistine coming out, and he is just like, are you kidding me? I've been here for 41 days staring at this army. Nobody wants to step out. And finally, you guys are going to send the representative from your side. I'm the champion, and you send the shepherd that just brought grilled cheese sandwiches to his brothers. That, that's the best you can come up with? Like, that's what's going on here in his mind. Imagine, not only that, but imagine how disgraced he feels in the sense that he's like, I deserve better than this. Like, at least give me a fight here. 
This isn't even going to be a battle for me. And so it says in verse 42, when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. He had a, a, a hatred for, towards him. He, he belittled him, honestly is what it's saying. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? That literally means a staff, his shepherd's staff. And the Philistine cursed David. How? By his gods. Again, this guy sees David in front of him, but he understands even more than Saul does that it's a spiritual battle. And he says, I don't have anything good to say about you or your God or gods. It doesn't matter to me. You don't stand a chance against me. And in verse 44, he tells him what he's going to do to him. I'm going to kill you and the birds are going to eat your flesh. David responds in verses 45 through 47. And just, I love this. Look at, as we read this, look at where David's confidence is. Listen to how he responds. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you, how? In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of, of Israel, whom you have defied. He said, I understand what's going on here. You are blaspheming God. And God is going to fight for Himself and for His people. This day the Lord will deliver you into My hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air. And in verse 47, Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And He will give you into our hands. David recognizes that he is stepping out in faith for God and for God's people. But he didn't say, I'm going to win this battle and then I'm just going to show you how awesome I am. He's doing it for God's people. He's doing it for God. None of this is about David. When we serve the Lord, it's not about us, guys. We're not doing this. I'm not standing up here preaching so that I can get some kind of accolades or pat on the back from you. I want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ and I want you to serve Him and love Him and follow Him, whether it's at this church or somewhere else. That's my ultimate desire for you is to have that relationship with Him and see you growing in your faith. That's what it's about. It's not about us. It's not about us having the biggest congregation, the most money, so that we can get on Facebook and brag about it. Sure, we want those things to happen because it's more souls and more opportunities to do more. But that's not the main mission. The mission is to make Him known. The mission is to glorify Him. Long before... I want you to see something. We're going to wrap up. Way back when we started this, this story. Remember what was said in verse 8. Goliath said, choose a man for yourselves. God had chosen a man long before Israel had to choose a man. God had already chosen someone. David slews Goliath, slays Goliath, and Israel wins the battle. David kills him. Israel, as a group, partakes in the victory. But way before David and way before Goliath, God had chosen another man. But He wasn't just any man. He was the God-man. He was fully God and fully man. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. He was perfect in every way. The Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. Perfect in every way. Fulfilled the law in our place lived the life that we could never live, and died the death that we deserved. His name is Jesus. That was God's choice from eternity past. Genesis 3.15, that promise is there. I will put enmity between you and the woman as He speaks to the serpent. 
And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That battle was predicted from the time of the Garden of Eden. And it was also predicted who would ultimately win that battle. As Jesus goes to the cross, he's the sacrifice for sin. In Colossians 2.15, Paul writes that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. And he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them. Jesus has won the victory, guys. We don't have to stand on the sidelines and wring our hands and say, I sure hope this all works out. It's going to work out just fine. I'm not saying that there won't be persecution and tribulation and trials and troubles because we know we're going to have them. But I'm looking to the one that's seated on the right hand of the Father right now. I'm looking at the one that has declared victory. I'm looking at the one that has promised that he's going to make all the enemies his footstool. That's the one I'm looking at. And he's going to come back and right all wrongs. And he's going to gather his people together. And I'm trusting in him to fight the battle. But I want to be a part of the army. I want to get out there and engage. I want to get out there and be used. I want to be a vessel for his service. Because that's the least I can do. And that's what I'm commanded to do. In 1 Corinthians 15.20 it says, Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Amen. That's the best news on earth. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or who have died. Because David won the battle, all of Israel won the battle too. Because Jesus won the battle on the cross and three days later rose out of that tomb, everybody that's connected to Him has the same fate waiting. Because He lives, we too shall live. Because He has defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave, so shall we. Not by our might and our strength and our good works, but because of our relationship with Him. That's all it takes. To be connected to the victor makes us victorious. You see, so often we read this story and we think, well, it's up to me to do this and do that to slay my giants. Jesus has already slain the giants. We walk in the victory that is His, and when the battles come, we trust the Word of God, we engage with the Word of God, but we walk by faith. Trusting the one that has already come. Jesus is the greater David. You've got to see that. All through his life, David was overlooked. Jesus was despised and rejected of men. David tended his father's flock. Jesus tends the flock of the living God. His church, his people. David suffered for his sins. Jesus suffered for our sins. Do you see that Jesus is the greater David? David fought against the enemy. Jesus fought for us when we were the enemy. Do you see the difference? It's not about us. It's about Him. David has an earthly throne. Jesus reigns on a heavenly throne above all things. He is the one that we look to today, church. And if you're here today and you're lost... You've got to understand that there is a spiritual Goliath, if you will, standing in front of you that you can never defeat. The wages of sin is death. And if you keep trusting in yourself, you will never have victory. But if you will look this morning in faith, if you will turn in repentance and say, Lord Jesus, I need you today to save me and forgive me. He can change your life. He's already defeated the enemy. Will you receive that by faith? Phyllis is going to come. And Tiffany's going to come. And we're going to have a hymn of invitation. And during this time, it's an opportunity for you to respond to the message. You say, what do I do during the invitation? You just respond to what you have heard in the Word of God. 
Maybe you don't have anything that God's dealing with you about. I'm sure there's other people that you're praying for that you can intercede this morning on their behalf then. But if God is calling you, if you know today you're lost, if you know today if you died, you would not be ready to stand before a holy God. Today is the day where you can get things right, and you do that by trusting Jesus Christ. Maybe you've not been living for Him. Maybe you're saved, but you've never followed Him in obedience to baptism. Maybe you've never joined a body of believers and got active here or somewhere. Maybe you're just backslidden, and you're not doing what you need to do. That's what the invitation time is for. It's an opportunity to come and have a conversation. I'll pray with you, but I can't save you. I can't fix you. I can certainly weep with you and rejoice with you, and I will. But Jesus is all you need, and He's ready for you today if you'll come. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this message. We thank You for Your Word and for Your Spirit. And now we pray, God, that You will have Your way in our hearts in this church, in this room, and those watching online, God. Move, convict, challenge, encourage whatever's needed. And may we leave here today rejoicing in what You've done in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we